that is really hard to step on the stage after. Um, <laughs> David, that was amazing. I don't know where you went, but thank you so much for blessing us, David. Um, that really struck me. Um, Get myself together here. Um, I, the reason that strikes me is because over the last uh, the last few weeks, I've been talking to students so much about God's unchangeableness. And great is thy faithfulness. In the first verse of that song, talking about how there is no shadow of turning within him. And I said this to students recently. Isn't it amazing that the same God that you woke up to this morning is the same God who was there yesterday, and he's the same God that will be there tomorrow. And isn't it even more amazing that he's the same God that doesn't change the rules? How terrifying would it be if that one day God just said, you know what, I've been telling you all along, it's by grace through faith alone. And then one day he had a change of heart and he said, no, 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 no. Now you got to work for it. That'd be terrifying. That'd be terrible. That'd be awful. And, and he is the same God, and, and it's still the same way. It's through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and praise be to God that that doesn't change, and it will never change, because he does not change. Um, it is just a stirring, stirring song, and, and stirring is the word that we'll be focusing on this morning. That was not an intentional segue. It just so happened to come out of my mouth. That's how the Lord works. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Haggai chapter 1. I will give you a few moments to find that because it is a tough one to find. If you don't know where it is, it is the third to last book of the Old Testament, um, and so you can find that. It is only a few chapters, and so it is quite small as well. And the reason we will be studying Haggai chapter 1 this morning is because a couple of weeks ago I had the privilege of taking some of our students here, our middle school and high school students, on a fall retreat, and we were studying in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and through this course of studying Ezra and Nehemiah, I fell in love with this passage of Haggai chapter 1 primarily because God really spoke to me and really did something in my heart as I was reading it. It convicted me and it changed me and it made me consider my ways as one of the things that God repeats over and over to the people in this passage. Consider your ways. I don't know what it is for you or where it is that you feel that you really get a sense of awe and wonder when you go somewhere. For many people, it's different places. A lot of people go to two different ideas. It's either, it's the mountains. If you're a mountain person, you love this time of year because it's beautiful and you get to, you know, grab a blanket and grab a fire and you go out to the mountains and the leaves are changing and it's beautiful. Or it could be the beach and it could be the ocean. I tend to be more of a beach-going person. I do love the mountains. I've come to respect them. But I, I grew up going to the beach and so I just think of the ocean as a very home place for me, and it just seems that every time I'm around the ocean, I'm around the water, it just sense the presence of the Lord just draws me in a little bit more, because you see the, the oceans roaring, and you hear that sound of the waves churning and hitting across the sand, and there's something about that that just draws you in to the Lord. I don't know where that place is for you. Think about it for a moment. Where is it that it gets you stirred up and your affections for Christ, your affection for God, grows. Where is that place for you? As I was staring out at the ocean, just uh, just recently, I was near the beach, and uh, just recently, and I was looking over the ocean, and it, it struck me, as the waves continue to move, and as the water continues to churn, constant motion, it's always happening. That's kind of the beauty and the wonder of the ocean. It's never still when you're at the beach. Sure, the waves may be shorter or smaller, but it's always moving. You can go other places. You could go to a pond, you know, smaller body of water. 
maybe go to even a lake, or if you just want to look out your backyard, if you happen to be privileged enough to have a swimming pool, you can look at the swimming pool in your backyard, and there are times and there are moments where the water can be completely still. It looks like glass until something ripples it. Not the ocean. It's continual movement. It's always churning. And it got me thinking, there's a body of water that the scriptures talk about often, and it's in that part of the world, the Dead Sea. The reason the Dead Sea is dead is because constantly water is flowing into it from other sources. But it doesn't have any outflow. And so the Dead Sea is dead because it just continues to capture everything, but it doesn't have any outflow. I had a friend, a dear friend and a mentor at my first church that I ever worked in tell me that that is a model for what the Christian life should not look like. It should not look like the Dead Sea, where it's continually being filled up with things, good things, the Word of God, the preaching of God's Word, singing, and, and the ministry of the church. It shouldn't just be filled with all that, but if there is no outflow, then it will continue to be dead. It will stagnate. There's no movement. And, and that is the challenge that we arrive to when you get to Haggai chapter 1. The people of God have stagnated. They have ceased to move. They have ceased to draw near to the Lord. A couple of important details to get into before you jump into this book, because like any other minor prophet, one that is not really read that often, you should know where you are in the story of Scripture and the history and the timeline of the world. At this point in the study of the, of the scriptures, you will find that God's people have returned out of Persia because they have been exiled. They have lost their land. They have lost Jerusalem. The temple itself was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians got overtaken by the Persians. And then the Persians allowed people to freely worship any religion they wanted, including the Jews, and so they allowed them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So a group of people were sent and commissioned by the Persian king to go back and rebuild the temple. The year is about 520 B.C. This is 66 years after the original temple that Solomon had built in all its glory and splendor was destroyed. Now, it's important to understand what the temple is. The temple was a place that had twofold reasoning. One, it was a place for God to take pleasure in the sacrifices of his people for the remission of their sin. And also, it was a place where God's glory would dwell. It was a place for God to dwell and his glory to be filling, a place for God to be glorified. It was a place for the people to meet with God. This has always been the intention of God himself. If you take the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it is a story of God dwelling with the, his creation, the one that he made in his likeness, us. You think about it, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1. God walked in the coolness of day with Adam and Eve. He dwelt with them. The temple was there. It was this perfect garden that God had built and constructed for them to dwell with him in perfect harmony. Now we know that then sin fractures that and breaks that, and so now the people are divided and separated from God because of their sin. However, God comes up with a place for them to dwell, and the, the Israelites built the tabernacle so there was a mobile unit where they could take God's presence with them as they journeyed through the land. And then, eventually, once they had this, the kingdom set up and they had Jerusalem, the temple was built, right? And that is where God's glory dwelt. Now, what happens when the temple's destroyed? You can imagine, for the people who identify this building with the presence of God, they would imagine that God's presence has been removed from them. If the temple is gone, God's presence is gone. 
You can feel the lostness that they would feel in that moment. In that reality, they don't know if God is still with them. They've been exiled from their homeland. They've lost it all. Then suddenly, a secular king allows them to go back home and rebuild the temple. A place where God could be glorified and take pleasure in the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the temple is an idea that I want you to understand, and I want to take it beyond Haggai for a second, because for the rest of this passage, it'd be, we would be foolish, we'd be remiss if we were to think of this passage as just building a building, okay? Now, I'm sure, and I'm not going to even harp on, because Pastor Rob and I talked about it earlier this week, he may have used this passage at some point talking about building campaigns. A lot of pastors will. Primarily, that is not what Haggai chapter 1 is about. Pastor Rob and I agree on that. It's a very good passage to talk about the reality of building a a place for the Lord to worship, but ultimately, this is not about a building. Why do we say that? Well, because in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, the temple is no longer a building, it's a person. Jesus said to all the, the Pharisees in his day, you can tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it back up. And they all looked at him with a side eye saying, how do you do that? Who do you think you are? What is he speaking in riddles? But then the scriptures tell us he was speaking of the temple of his own body. Why is that? It's because Jesus is the temple when he arrives. He is God's presence dwelling among people. He is also the place that God takes much pleasure in. God is satisfied and takes pleasure in his son Christ. He is the sacrifice for our sins, atoning for our sin. He is the place where God is glorified as he walks the earth. Jesus was the temple. The temple is no longer a place, it's a person. Something fascinating happens after that. Jesus dies on the cross, he is resurrected from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, and he sends the Holy Spirit to the church, his followers, the believers, that is us in the new covenant age that we now live in, and now we find that we are the temple. That's a fascinating turn. God's presence dwells not in a place, but with people now, in us, and you and me, if you're a follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says it this way, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is the temple that God chooses to dwell in now. That's where he decides to give his presence. It's an amazing, amazing reality. The God that used to dwell in the Garden of Eden, then his presence was lost, but then a glorious temple was built and destroyed, but then now it's within you. And by extension, you spread that same glory and you can create other temples to, for God to dwell. And that's what First Peter 2, verses 4 and 5 says. It says, as you come to him, him being Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, it was chosen and precious. God took pleasure in him. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be holy priesthood only to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So all that foundation laid for the opportunity to say it's not about a building. So when we talk about building the temple in Haggai chapter one, it's about building our relationship with the Lord, not about a church. 
not about this church, not about building more things in this church property. It's about our relationship with the Lord. All right, so if you're still with me and you still have your finger on Haggai chapter 1, you haven't lost it, because if you have, it might take you the rest of the sermon to find it again. Hopefully, you're still there. All right, so here we go. Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to read a couple verses at a time, and we'll stop and look into it. But here we are in Haggai chapter 1. It says this in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Let's stop there for a second. So, so you, you get the framework, and again, this is Darius. He's the, the king of Persia at the time, and he allows them to come back, and you find out that there's a couple of Jewish men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the other remnant of exiles that are, are allowed to go back to their hometown, their homeland, Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And then the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai, and it says something interesting. It doesn't say what the Lord says first. This is a very interesting one. This one is that the Lord says, this is what the people are saying. This is what you, God's people, are saying right now. The time has not yet come that the Lord's house should be built. So it starts out with an excuse. The people say, listen, it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. We know that we have come back here to do that, but that's not what we're here for at this moment. We're not here to rebuild the temple. Now, that got me thinking, like, what could it be? time. There's a lot of excuses that we give, right? It's not time to do that yet. And and you could think of probably some legitimate reasons why these people would say it's not time to do that yet. Maybe they've got to gather some things for the harvest. You know, they don't have refrigerators. They don't have grocery stores. They surely didn't have Costco with all the big boxes that you could store in a massive deep chest freezer for doomsday if it ever does come, right? So they didn't have all that. So maybe as exiles in a broken, war-torn city in Jerusalem, they should be gathering food. They don't have time to rebuild the temple right now because they need to just survive. Now, what's really interesting is that it notes in verse 1, it was the sixth month, the first day of the month. That is significant because in the sixth month, harvest was already over. They would have already gathered all the grain and all the supplies and all the food that they would have needed. So that's not a legitimate excuse for the time. Well, maybe it's, maybe it was interference, right? Maybe it was something going on. If you read the book of Ezra and you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that they often have scoffers. They have these people who continue to point the finger and try to distract God's people from God's work. They were Samaritans. They were scoffers. They were trying to get in the way of what God's people were doing by rebuilding the temple. And then when Nehemiah comes along, rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So maybe there was some opposition, and maybe they were just waiting for everything to cool down. Maybe they didn't want the spotlight to be on what they were doing. Maybe they didn't want the political angles to be risen up. They didn't want to have a high profile in the place of the king. That's not it. Because if you read Ezra, you'll find that the Samaritans, the scoffers, they were around. But at this point in time, when the temple foundation had been laid, but they had not continued to build the rest of the temple, the scoffers are nowhere around at that point. That's not it. Maybe it's a lack of resources. Maybe because they're exiles and they have not lived in this place for a long time, maybe it's tough times. Maybe the economy's down. Maybe it's been a downturn and then the way the things are. Maybe it's a recession. Maybe there's inflation. Maybe there's both. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. Maybe there's a lack of resources and maybe they should just wait for a better economic forecast 
to build the temple. You look at what the temple would look like in Solomon's day. It was built with expensive wood, a lot of gold. Gold was everywhere in the temple. Silver. These are commodities. These are materials that are not easily to, easy to come by. So, so maybe economic times are tough, and this isn't the time to take a chance and build those things. That can't be it. Why, why do we know that can't be it? Because you'll see that in God's response in the next verse, you'll find that, that that's not the problem it says, we'll continue on. Verse 3, then the, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your siled houses in this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough to drink. Ye drink, but ye are not enough filled with drink. Ye clothe, clothe you, but none is warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put in a bag into holes. Thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and ye brought it home. I did blow it open. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. What's really interesting is you find out that they continue to build their own homes. So it's not an economic downturn. In fact, in some other translations, you'll find that it talks about building their homes with paneled wood. They're making their homes look beautiful. They're fortifying their own homes. They're making them comfortable. There is something going on here. So it's not that there's not enough money. It's not that they are trying to wait for a less opposition. It's not that they have other important jobs to do, like just surviving and gathering food. That's not it. Instead, here's the problem. They have inverted priorities. They have seen that it is more important, or they have decided in their mind, it is more important to care for their own well-being on earth rather than to look for eternal or spiritual things. Or I'll say it another way. While the place of God or the place to dwell with God is left unfinished, the places where they could dwell comfortably in the world were being adorned. While the place where they could dwell with God remained unfinished, the place where they could dwell comfortably with their stuff in the world remained unfinished. Adorned, and in fact, we're gathering more adornments. They were spending all their things on these homes, but instead of seeing a place where they could dwell with God, they were more worried about their own comfort. God's response to their excuse is You don't have time for me, but you have time to build your home instead. Now, again, this is not about building a home. This is not building a church. This is about what we are building with our lives. What are we building with our lives? The people's action here is that they are going to work hard for the comforts that they crave. If if you go back and you read again in verse 6, it says that they sowed much, but they brought in little. They ate, but they didn't have enough. They drank, but they were never filled enough. 
They were clothed, they're looking for clothes, but still there were people who were cold, none were warm, and they were earning wages, but everything that they earned, it was like putting into a bag with a hole in it, and so you drop a coin into the bag, and then it just fell out the bottom, and then they're like, well, where'd my money go? I need to buy more, and it just kept falling out the bottom, and so what is happening here is that they continue to seek after creature comforts of the world, but they find they never have enough, and rather than getting off that hamster wheel of repetition where they've realize that this is never going to satisfy, they continue to spin harder. They continue to work harder to make their lives comfortable. God says, get out of this. Get out, get out of this rat race. Get out of this hamster wheel of repetition and seek me. But instead, they continued with their inverted priorities. They neglected caring for God. They neglected proper attention for God. Instead, they neglect the commands of God, and they go on to focus on their own worldly lives. And I think this is what really struck me. How often are we doing this? Yeah, I, I thought about this, um, and, and, and this has been in the news a lot. Uh, if you've been paying attention, I, I love, Saturdays are great for college football. And I think yesterday was like the first day all fall because our kids are in upward sports here and we're always doing things on a Saturday where nobody had any plans and we literally did not leave our home for an entire day. I don't know the last time our family has done that. So we sat and watched college football for a long time and it was a beautiful day. My wife said, this was a great day for the soul. But as we're watching, um, I'm sure you've heard the news about the tragic events at the University of Virginia with the football players and their team and things that happened there. If you don't, um, unfortunately and tragically, three football players lost their lives in a shooting. And so the whole college football world is supporting them. And it got me to remembering in a, in a previous life, when I was younger than I am now, and I was at the University of Maryland, I was a sports broadcasting major, and I used to broadcast a lot of games for our student radio, television, or student radio station. Back then, Maryland was still in the ACC. And so there were many times that I went down to Charlottesville. I remember in particular one time that I was in the car as a young sophomore with two senior guys who had all the power and authority in our radio station. And I was driving down, and these two guys are both from up north, and we're driving down, and they're making comments as we're going down the, the route 29 from Maryland to Virginia about how many churches just are dotting the road as you go down into the depths of southern Virginia on the way down to Charlottesville. And as I'm listening to them say that, I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is an opportunity. I should probably share why that is or share that I, I enjoy church or that I like the church or that I go to church even. Instead, I sat back in the backseat of that car, and I just listened, and I just couldn't speak up. And, and, and what it was was I was afraid of being seen differently by two guys who had authority in that time and that space for what I thought was my career. I thought this was it. This is where I'm headed. I am going to build my reputation. I'm going to build up my house. I'm going to build up my career, my resume, by being on this radio station. And one day I'm on the fast track. I'm going to hit this hard. And I'm going to go and be on radio and TV one day. And so I thought for sure, this is it for me. And I couldn't speak. And it wasn't until later that the Lord really convicted my heart along my way in college that eventually as he gripped my heart... I realized I don't want to build my resume anymore. I'd rather build his and use my tongue to build his resume rather than my own and, and to talk about things that are worthwhile instead of things that will break and fall instead of a bag with holes in it. I don't know what you're chasing after this morning. 
younger people in the crowd, older, older people in the crowd, it, we're all chasing after something. E- even if you feel like you're at the, towards the end of your run, you're still chasing after something. Scripture warns you that, that you're going to chase after so many things, but you're going to find that that bag is filled with holes. You're going to continue to put stuff into that bag, and it's continue to fall out the bottom, and you're going to continue to be kind of upset. You're going to be lost. You're going to be kind of frustrated because everything continues to fall out. And so you're chasing, and you're chasing, and you're chasing, and you just can't get enough. And this is where I find this is fascinating, that the Lord says something interesting. As he goes on and he says in verse 9, Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Here's what God says. You were looking for so much in this world. You were trying to harvest so much plenty, and you were doing all this work, and yet I blew upon the land. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of their hands. In short, God says, you were seeking after all this stuff in the world, and it came to nothing, and it came to frustration. You kept trying to harvest more, and it kept, there was a drought, and the dew is being withheld. And you thought to yourself, what is going on? So we got to just work harder. Maybe we got to earn this a little bit better. And God says, stop. Guess what? I was doing that. I was frustrating your plans. I was making it so that you could not succeed. I was making it so that the ground was not producing new fruits and new wines for you. I was making it so that you could not enjoy the things of creation in this moment. Now, for some of you, you go, man, this is what I've always disliked about God. I have this view that he is like the kid with a magnifying glass in the anthill, and he's angry, Right? And he's just going to burn their little feelers off. And this is God's way of punishing people because they're not rebuilding their house. Their priorities are inverted. You just said that yourself, Pastor. So their priorities are inverted. So clearly God's punishing them, right? Some of you think that's how God operates. He's just mean. That's mean, God. I mean, these people came back to rebuild your house. I mean, give them, throw them a bone. Help them out. Give them a good harvest. But you know, you could think of it a different way. You can think of it the actual way that I think God intends you to understand his character and who he actually is instead of thinking he's just mean. Could it be that that is the most grace-filled, kind thing that God could do to them? Could it be that as you seek the world and as you seek all these other things that might not be the Lord, and your eyes are off of him, onto other things that are not necessarily bad, but they're onto other things, could it be that God's frustrating your plans? And that's an act of mercy. Could it be that God loves you too much to allow you to succeed in this world? Because if you succeed without him, your eyes would be off of him and onto yourself, and you would think that you've done it, you've arrived. And your understanding of your need for him would be lost. It may be that God loves you too much to allow you to succeed without him. I, I, I could think of nothing more terrible. I, I'll just take it from my context because I, I'm, I work in ministry full time. But you could take it to your own, whatever your profession is, or whatever you put your hand to on a daily basis. 
if I get up here and I and I speak and I preach and I do things and then people come up to me later and they go, wow, that was great, Pastor Kyle. Man, you spoke the word to me. God really spoke to me today. And yet I didn't take the time to pray. I didn't take the time to read God's word. I didn't take the time to allow this to sink deep within me. And I just did this out of my own ability to be a good speaker and a good communicator and a decent, you know, orator of God's word. If I just did it out of my own ability, the most dangerous thing that could ever happen would be for me to have success. Because then I could think I could do this on my own. That might be the most dangerous place you could be. Where you've succeeded, but you haven't given thanks to the Lord. And you continue to succeed. And as more success grows, you think, I don't need him. I can do this without him. That could be the most dangerous place you could ever be. So God says to them, you didn't have time for me. You built your home instead. And he tells them, I prevented you from succeeding. I'm trying to get your attention. And here's what the people say in verse 12. Their response, finally. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. It was the fourth and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. So after excuses, God's response to wake them up, then after all the work that they did to pursue creature comforts and worldly things, God shakes them out of that by saying, no, 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 I, I frustrated your plan so that you would seek me. They obeyed and feared the Lord. And then something else happened. God stirred their hearts. See, I think oftentimes we, we can stir, we can, we can obey and we can fear. We, we can do that. We are, sometimes we're confronted with the Lord and we can obey him and we can fear him because we are shook. We are stunned by what we see when sometimes we read scripture or where there's a moment in our lives where we kind of put all the pieces together. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you kind of look back and you go, oh, the Lord was doing that. Wow. Whoa. God is really in control of all things. You've had those moments, surely. And, and so maybe that's, it strikes awe and fear into you. And then that generates some obedience. But I read this recently and this really struck me. And maybe It'll strike you the same way. Maybe it'll, you'll have a hard time digesting it because I, I took a long time to really sit on this. But I was reading a book by an author, and he said, you know, we don't need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to obey God. What he's saying is you can choose to live a moral life on your own without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it. You know, and, and then I started to think about that more. Can I really obey God without the Spirit in my life? Is that really possible? Because I'm still going to want to do things my own way. I'm going to have to need a spirit change. Could I really do that? And, and I think you can. It's morally, I can, I can live a moral, upright life without the Spirit of God in my life. You know how I know that to be true? 
There's a whole group of people following a cult called Mormonism who live probably more moral lives than I do. I mean, they refrain from all types of things. Caffeine. I broke that this morning in the green room. I had a giant cup of coffee. So I broke that one because they don't want to be submitted to anything in the body, including caffeine. But they don't have the Spirit of the Lord in them. We would agree that they don't know Christ, that Christ doesn't dwell within them, but they can live up moral, upright, standing lives. So it is possible to live in obedience to the Lord without the Spirit of the Lord. But here's what the author then said. So we don't need the Spirit of the Lord to obey God, but we do need the Spirit of the Lord to enjoy obeying God. And that's where the people needed God to stir their hearts. What's interesting is it doesn't say that they immediately started working on the temple right then and there. If you go back to verse 1, it was the first day of the month when the word of the Lord started talking. At the end of the chapter, you see that it was later on the 24th day. So there's a gap. There's a time. The word of the Lord comes, and they fear and they obey, but it wasn't until the Lord gave them two things. One, a reassurance of his promise. This is what he says in verse 13. I'll read it again for you. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. They needed to be reminded that despite the fact that the building lay in ruin, he still was with them. Maybe you need that reassurance this morning. Despite the fact that you have not taken the time to spend time with the Lord recently, where your relationship with him feels like it is a little bit in tatters or has been neglected or has grown cold for a period of time, the Lord is coming to you saying, I am with you. Let me take a New Testament way of saying that. I am for you. I am not against you. The Lord promises and reassures you and us that he is with us that he is the same, that as we spoke and sang, great is his faithfulness, that morning by morning new mercies you're going to see. And so he tells them, I am with you. And then in verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel and the people of God, all the remnant of people. So God stirred them. He first told them and promised them that he's still with them. He reassured them of his favor. And then he stirred their hearts. You can fear the Lord and obey him, but until God stirs your heart, that's a supernatural work, you won't start to rebuild. You won't go into action. That word stirring is a word that is used throughout Scripture. Typically, it's used to talk about agitating, disturbing, or to awaken or start to move someone. We talked about this morning at the very beginning, the ocean continues to churn and to move. That's how God wants your heart to work with him. He wants to continue to draw you closer to him. Move towards him. Don't stand still. Don't stagnate. Don't just take in a bunch of great theology or promises or prayers from other people, but actually move towards him. Churn be agitated. Typically, this word stirring was used to talk about inciting people to act together against something that wasn't favorable. 
I would say the most of the time that we would think of the word stirring in our context today is when people get stirred up in terms of politics. We're two or three weeks removed from another political landmark, right, where we just had to have elections. Midterms have just passed, and now we're all talking about, is the House red and the Senate's blue, and we still have another guy in the White House who's blue, and then who else knows what's red and blue, and there's purple all over, right? So, so we've got all this going on. People stir when they talk about politics. It often incites them to move, sometimes with their feet to the ballot box, sometimes to their computer to type away their opinions about who said what and who did what. Often stirring is something that incites you to action. We stir a lot over those things. Maybe you stir over your family. That causes you to move to action. When somebody threatens your family, again, these are not bad things, by the way, okay? But, but you get stirred to action because you see somebody taking a step towards your family or you see something as a threat to your family. So you're, you're awakened to action. You move into action. You're stirred because you love your family. If you're stirred by politics, you love your country. And so you, there's some, some things that you want to see happen for your country. These are things that you love. You're stirred to action by the, for the things, to the things that you love. The Lord's saying, I'm stirring your heart towards me. Come to me. Allow, allow it to stir to me. I'm for you. I'm not against you. But I need you to be awake. I need you to stir your heart towards me. God wants to set us in motion, church. He wants to stir us into motion. And here's three things he wants to stir you towards and we'll be done. He wants you to move toward God's glory. He wants to stir your heart to move towards his glory first. He wants you to behold him fresh every single day, to grow in your knowledge and the grace and truth of who he is. That, that, that's what God's intention is, is that no matter how long you have known him, no matter how many times you have heard the word preached, no matter how many times you've opened your Bible and read it and studied it for yourself, that as you continue to press in deeper, you will find that there's so much more to him than what you previously knew, which is great. It's good. He wants you to press in and move towards his glory, be stirred in your heart so you can worship him. Number two, he wants to move you towards Christ-likeness. He doesn't just save you so that you can understand and behold his glory. He saves you so that you can be more like Jesus. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you are not just saved from your sin, but you are saved to righteousness. You are saved to something. It is moving you towards Christ. You are no longer filling a bag that has a hole in it. You now have a patch over that bag, and every time you fill it up, it fills you up more and more, because guess what? You're filled with the Prince of Peace. Christ is full of joy everlasting, and you are finding joy in a world that is broken and still lays in ruins around you. And while everything else is broken, you find that there is a peace with Him. I think this is, this is so fascinating to me. I'm not going to have time to go through all of this with you because we just literally did a whole chapter of Haggai in about 30 minutes. But here, I just want to just throw your attention to chapter 2. You don't have to look over there. But in verse 3, there's a problem with broken expectations. There are some people who apparently were still lingering in that remnant who came back that remembered the temple in its former glory. They had beheld the temple that Solomon built, and they were remembering back to the good old days. Man, that temple... Whew, it was beautiful. It was something. It was a sight to behold. If you could have been there, 
Oh, it was, it was, it was awesome. And then Haggai addresses them because he says, you who look at it, you seem disappointed. Because what they were building now in Jerusalem, they were, this isn't going to be the same. It's not going to be like it once was. And for some of you, maybe you think of your life, you think, man, my, my relationship with the Lord isn't what it used to be. I don't know if it'll ever get back to the joy of my salvation. That's why David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, he asks for that. He begs God to do that. Because there is something miraculous about that moment when you first beheld Christ and you understood your sin and you were broken over it. And you came to him and you're like, I just want Jesus. I need you to save me. And there's something joyful about that for you. And you're like, I, I, that, that's a day gone by. It's so glorious. I wish that day would come. But here I am. 20, 30 years into this, and it's just kind of the same old, same old. Have a quiet time, go to church, Sunday, maybe Wednesday too, if I'm feeling like I need a double dip. Oh, well, maybe I'll just go to church Sunday evening and Sunday evening, and so that way it fills me up, and I'll sing some good worship music in the car. But you're, you're so stuck on what it used to be. You know that the Lord is not done with you, no matter where you're at in your life. He's not done with you. This is what he says at the end of Haggai in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. He says, what's coming in this house is going to be better than the former. Here's why. This place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Lord, that the Lord will be that temple, that no longer will it be some adornment golden building, but it's going to be a person in this place. When this glory of this temple comes, it's better than the former, and this is where peace will dwell. Your personal holiness, you're looking for peace. Dwell with Christ. You'll get it. Finally, God wants to set your heart in motion, stir your heart, so you move towards his will. His will for you is not to build a house with panels on it. That, that is not to say that if you have a really nice house that you have done something wrong with your life. Again, it's not about a building, it's about a person. God's desire is to move you towards his will for your life. And I can simplify it for you if you don't know what that is. And again, to the younger people sitting in this room, all the way to the more seasoned and experienced people in this room. God's will for your life has not changed. Glorify him with your life. Reach the lost and cause others to experience his presence. You are the temple where God's presence dwells. Living stones, as Peter says, that the house is built upon. You are meant to extend that invitation to others who don't yet know him. As you worship him, as your personal holiness and Christ's likeness grows, you will glorify God more with your life. And as you glorify God more with your life, others will be drawn into glorifying him. Now make no mistake, this is not an opportunity for me to say, you just live out the Christian life, people will notice and they'll get saved. You do have to talk. You do have to open your mouth. You do have to share the good news. As Romans 10 would say, how do, they come, how do they come to a knowledge of him? If we do not speak, we must speak the gospel. This passage really 
got me to thinking, what am I building? What am I building? Am I building a place for him to dwell? Am I building a place that I want to be comfortable in? The life that you're building, is it built around what you have always decided was best? It's not time. Nah, it's not time. God, I know, you, I know you're calling me to do this for you. It's just not time. There'll be a better time. There'll be a day. There'll be a day. But not today. Maybe you've said that for a long time. And you've said, maybe that day will be tomorrow, and tomorrow has never come. And now that tomorrow is a yesterday long gone. The encouragement for you this morning is the same encouragement that the people in Haggai chapter 1 received. The Lord says, I am with thee. I've not left thee. I will never forsake you. It's not too late. You can still glorify me. no matter how long it's been. The Lord desires for his people to delight in him, not just obey him. And delight itself is a command. I'll finish with this, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That is the goal. Is he your delight? Is he what stirs you, moves you to action each day? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you jump up? The only way that our hearts are stirred is if he does something in us, like he did in the people at Haggai chapter 1. He has to stir your heart. You need to be open to that. You need to be opening your heart to him. Say, Lord, Lord, here is my life. May you take it and use it for whatever you may ask you do that, open your heart. He will stir it. He will move it. And if you don't know where that's going to take you, that's okay. You don't need to know the destination. He does. Trust him because it's for your good and his glory. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that the temple that has come is Christ, and we thank you that he is the one who we now have dwelling within us. Lord, forgive us when we are caught up and distracted and our priorities are inverted and not seeking you. Oh Lord, help us. Stir our hearts, Lord. Stir the hearts of our congregation here. May we carry the presence of God with us into our community, into our homes, into our workplaces, so that we may see more come to glorify you, Lord. That is the heartbeat of the follower of Christ. We just know the glory of Jesus, and we want more people to experience the same glory that we behold. God, stir our hearts. Stir us towards action move us towards you in a way 
the trifles of this world, the things of this world that grow strangely dim when we stand in the light of your glory and your grace. Be with us as we sing to you now. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.